I'm Martine Halverson-Taylor. And I'm Curtis Schaefer. We both study religion here at the University of Virginia. And this is Sacred and Profane. On the show, we explore how religion shapes our daily lives in ways that we may not realize. Our story today asks the question, what happens when people look at you and your religion is all they can see? It's a story that comes to us from one of our students here at UVA, Evan Sandsmark, although he's not here at the moment. We'll let Evan take it from here. I've lived on and off in Austria for the last few years. My wife is Austrian, and her family still lives here. And I can tell you that a lot of outsiders see Austria as a country of quaint tradition. It's the country of Mozart and Alpine skiing. It's the country where the sound of music takes place, where people still wear lederhosen and dendels. There's some truth to that quaint idea of Austria, but it's also a modern democracy and it's one that is facing a lot of questions about what kind of country it will be in the future. Some of the biggest questions are about immigration and assimilation. Like many of its neighbors in the European Union, Austria is struggling to cope with an influx of refugees who hope to resettle there. Austria is German-speaking and majority Roman Catholic. Many asylum seekers are Muslim men from the Middle East and North Africa, in a country without much history of racial or religious diversity. They stand out. The question of what to do with these newcomers is constantly in the news. It was a driving force in Austria's contentious 2016 presidential elections. Should more refugees be allowed in? And should those already here be allowed to stay? These are the big issues that dominate public discourse, but I wanted to know the answers to more specific questions that are asked less frequently here. Questions like, what does it mean to resettle in a country like Austria, where almost everyone is different than you? What would compel a person to leave their home to start a completely new life in a different country? What is this new life like? Can Austria ever feel like home to, say, a Muslim from Iraq? Consider the story of Hassan. 33 years old, coming from the desert, from Iraq, Baghdad. We are sharing a beer in the Innsbrucker Hofgarten, a park near the old town in Innsbruck. I first met Hassan a few years ago studying German at the University of Innsbruck, and we've remained friends ever since. Hassan, by the way, is not his real name. He wanted to use his full name in the story, but given some of the details he shared with me about how and why he left Iraq, we wanted to make sure he didn't face any reprisals or harassment. How Hassan came to Innsbruck from Baghdad is a complicated story, but it starts in 2012, when he was an officer in the Iraqi army. One day his unit was sent on a mission to capture two enemy soldiers who were shooting rockets at U.S. military bases. The mission is a success. And this is the start of Hassan's problems.
It turns out that the captured men belong to a militia with ties to one of the leading political parties in Iraq. And shortly after their capture, Hassan starts receiving text messages ordering him to release the prisoners. Or else. Hassan reports the threats to his commander, who tells him to ignore them. Over the next month or so, the threatening calls and texts keep coming. They were of course distressing, but they aren't that unusual. Hassan was working with the US military, not a force for good in the eyes of many Iraqis. This sort of thing was basically part of being a soldier in Iraq. For the most part, they don't need to be taken especially seriously. So one day I opened the door. So I saw some battery and some wires and some like some like a bomb, a bomb, yeah, a small bomb, you know. It turns out it isn't a functioning bomb, but Hassan is still shaken. So I start to get worried about my family, you know, because in Iraq you live with the family always. And my brother, he have children, and his children always in my home. And after that, I get also threat. You saw the bomb. You saw. You must to quit now. You must to leave this war. So at that time, I said, that's enough. They will catch me next time. And I start to arrange how I quit from the military. The only problem is that you can't just quit the military. Iraq was at war, and all soldiers were required to continue serving until relieved of duty. Just one option, you, you run away. Over the next few months, he strategizes about his next move, how to get out of Iraq, and where to go from there. He's obviously shaken by the bomb incident, but deserting from the army means he may never be able to live with his family again. But then this happens. One day I was in the traffic with my car. I was always watching. So I saw a car with four persons. They follow me. After they found me like 10 minutes, they start to shoot me. So I get bullets in my car everywhere, you know. I had luck in that moment and I escaped from them. After one week from this accident, I leave Iraq. And he leaves. He heads north from Baghdad toward Turkey, the jumping off point for many migrants from the Middle East heading to Europe. Hassan is in Turkey for about two months as he looks for a human trafficker. Eventually he connects with a person who is able to get him from Istanbul to Paris. He spends a week in Paris, deliberating about his next move. He knows other refugees, and they all tell him that Germany or Austria are his best bets. He spends a few days in Frankfurt, but doesn't really like it, and then decides to come to Austria. They put me in refugee house, and I spent three years and a half until I get my asylum. <laughs> it takes him an unusually long time to gain any kind of residency status. It took more than a year just to get an interview, and once he finally does, he has to wait another year for a response. And after this two-year waiting period, he finally receives a letter in the mail. His application had been denied. He says that many of the cases come down to luck. To whether the interviewer just so happens to like you. 
He thinks he was unlucky, drawing an interviewer who didn't seem to understand the situation in Iraq, especially for a soldier who had abandoned his military post. But he is able to appeal his decision, and then finally, more than a year later, he ends up with a sort of temporary asylum, which he has to reapply for each year. During the three and a half years he waits for some form of legal residency, he was in a liminal space. He's in Austria, but not really a part of it. He's not allowed to work a regular job, and he gets only limited financial help from the government, about 200 euros a month to cover all his expenses. That doesn't go very far in a Western European country. He eventually gets a part-time job with the local government working as a gardener, but the pay is low, so he still struggles to get by. Since there is a curfew, he mostly just works his part-time shift and returns home. And his living situation is also, to say the least, non-ideal. He stays at a refugee house on the outskirts of town. It was a hard time for me. And uh, people from different countries, <laughs> different uh, nationalities, no? like I was, one time I was in one room with someone from Afghanistan, someone from Somalia, someone Kurdish. Nobody understand anybody. And everybody, he have his own culture. He copes by getting out of the refugee house as often as possible. He takes German classes. It is in one of these classes where we first meet and tries to make friends with the local people. In other words, he tries to integrate as immigrants are always told to do. If I want to integrate with the community, there are some walls I must to cross, you know? I try my best to like make some friendship or some to meet some new people here. I get like rejected or they don't give us the chance to integrate with the community. I get ignored from everybody, you know. I get depression from it, you know. Even in the best of circumstances, integration is really, really difficult. It's hard to overstate the magnitude of the task. When you come here as a refugee, you must start everything from the beginning. Like you come like a child here because you must learn new language, new culture, new everything. You must learn. You must learn it, you know? Over time, as his German improves and he learns more about the patterns of Austrian life, Everyday tasks become a bit easier, but this only goes so far. He finds it difficult to strike up conversations with locals, and on the rare occasion when he succeeds, they always go in the same direction. They talk just refugees and religion. Refugees and religion, they have no subject with me, just this. It is, of course, especially obnoxious when the conversation centers on some absurd stereotype, like that all Muslims are violent. But even when prejudices don't surface, it is still tedious to have the same conversation over and over. It is easy to overlook how alienating it is to always be a stranger in the place that you now call home. Imagine what it's like when every conversation begins with the same question. Where are you from? To this day, no question bothers Hassan more. It's not that he finds it offensive exactly. 
nor does he mind talking about Iraq or Baghdad. The problem is that it's the only question people ask, as if his entire self can be reduced to this one fact, the one fact that marks him as an outsider. In Austria, Hassan's identity is inextricably linked to Iraq, which in turn links him to Islam, even though Hassan is not really religious himself. Here, if you are Muslim, you are from this country, especially Middle East, as they say, you have the Ash card. <laughs> the literal translation of this is a bit vulgar in English, but it's an everyday idiom in German. When you have the Ashkarte, this means you've drawn the short stick in life. By virtue of being Muslim or Middle Eastern, you are disadvantaged. You are on the outside, not part of the group. To escape the outsider label, some Muslims have converted to Christianity, at least publicly. Some people I know, they leave their religion because they want to live here. One of his roommates in the refugee house did this, in fact. On Sundays, he goes to church. At home, he still prays five times a day, like any observant Muslim. I asked him once, what, uh, what you do? Like, you, he said, yeah, I just want the paper. I just want the asylum. In his heart, he don't change his religion. Some people, if they want to stay here, if they leave, they must leave their community, their tradition. Maybe they survive here. Maybe it helps to look Christian, but Hassan isn't sure. One of Hassan's close friends in Austria is also a refugee from Iraq. Like a good number of asylum seekers, he's a Christian. In fact, he belongs to the Chaldean Catholic Church, a branch of the very same Christian communion that the majority of Austrians belong to. But Hassan says his friend's path doesn't seem any easier than that of Muslim refugees. If you can be marked as other, more often than not, you will be, in Austria or anywhere else. That's why there are big walls between the refugees and the locals. Really big walls. And if you, few, really few, few people, they can cross these walls. The barrier to entry is often insurmountable. Hassan acknowledges that not all refugees try to integrate, and a few even resort to lives of crime. But anxiety about refugees is high. The local population often generalizes about all refugees, leading to mistrust or outright hostility towards the migrant community. This is not the whole story, of course. I should note that essentially every time Hassan levels a criticism at Austria's reception or treatment of refugees, he is quick to point out the many exceptions. Multiple times in our conversation, he notes the extraordinary generosity of some of the Austrians he has met, people who assisted with his asylum application, for example, or helped him with his German. But this doesn't speak to the refugees' overall place in society. Even if there are generous and welcoming people, and there most certainly are, this doesn't solve the problem of integration. Migrants as a group remain separate, and separate for the worse. In a homogeneous country like Austria, the majority's beliefs dominate the national conversation and national politics, and that puts people outside the majority, people like Hassan, in a uniquely vulnerable position. Those on the outside have to live with the nation's preferences, 
whatever they may be. This is at the heart of Austria's problem, but it's not unique to Austria. It's a problem that's inherent in the very idea of democracy. Do you feel threatened by the majority, essentially, of the people here? Of course. I feel threatened. I feel not safe. And anytime I get like, yeah, you have to go home. Because people had it here now. I heard about it. I know people, they get post after the asylum. They get post, yeah, you must go home. By post, Hassan means messages through the mail. Letters informing asylum seekers that they must return to their home countries. The threat of losing refugee status was made very real during the 2016 presidential election in Austria. Norbert Hofer, the leader of the far-right anti-immigrant freedom party, came within a hair's breadth of winning the presidential election, receiving 49.7% of the popular vote in May. The first vote was so close, in fact, that the election was held again because of voting irregularities and absentee ballots. In the second election, held a few months later in December, Hofer performed worse, receiving about 47% of the vote. But his near election is a reminder of the power of majority rule and how vulnerable minority groups are before it. This Neubert Hover, he focused on the subject of refugee. They choose him because they don't, they want to stop the refugees or they send the refugees back home. They choose him because the people here, they don't like the stranger, they don't like the refugee. Not surprisingly, all of this has taken a toll on Hassan. For me, as a person, I have really problem in my country and I came here to really to start a new life. I regret now. Regret to come here. After these years, I learned German, I tried to meet people, I work hard, I don't make problem, I, I always follow the law and I regret to come here because here, for me, you live alone, you stay alone, and, and every, every minute you get to port to your country. He is referring again to the threat of deportation. For those without permanent residency, it's a threat that's always looming in the background. It is like an illness that lies dormant but could flare up again at any time. And the flare-up is caused not by some capricious despot, but by the will of the people expressed through free and fair democratic elections. This problem is often called the tyranny of the majority by philosophers and political scientists. It is an ancient fear about democratic rule. Reflecting on the earliest democratic experiments in ancient Greece, Plato warned that majority opinion is no guide to truth. In fact, he thought majority rule was just as oppressive as despotic rule. Two millennia later, Alexis de Tocqueville wrote that majorities function as absolute sovereigns. He called public opinion omnipotent, since there is no way to appeal it, even in a system of checks and balances. Hassan's story shows how this plays out in Austria's democracy. 
as a country dominated by a large ethnic and religious majority struggles to accommodate new minority groups. The same struggle is playing out across Europe, but this problem is larger than any one country or continent. It is a conceptual problem, a basic flaw baked into the very concept of democratic rule, and yet we can imagine no better system. We must give decision-making power to the people, or else we will be subject to a power more dangerous still. It is exactly as Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government besides every other. And for Hassan, fleeing violence in his home country, confronting discrimination in his adopted land, Austria may be the worst place to live besides everywhere else. Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab at the University of Virginia. Today's story was reported by Evan Sandsmark. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program and communications manager is Ashley Duffalo. Music in this episode came from Jazar and Blue Dot Sessions. For more on our work, head to religionlab.virginia.edu or follow us on Twitter at The Religion Lab.